I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. This is a most terrifying chapter. Uh, would probably be, have to be rated R for graphic violence. Um, it describes for us the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments. The first four trumpets brought judgment on nature. We saw those in chapter 8. A third of the earth was burned. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the rivers were poisoned. A third of the heavens were darkened. And as mankind was looking up at the heavens and noticing the darkening of the heavens, the 13th verse of chapter 8 occurs, and I looked and heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. The first four come on nature, and then this, this eagle or angel flies through the sky and says, Woe, woe, woe. You haven't seen anything yet. Because the final three trumpet judgments are going to bring woe on the earth. And specifically, that woe is going to be because they are going to pour out their judgments upon man. And as we're going to see in this chapter, the very contents of hell are going to be spilled out on the earth with the result that one-third of mankind is going to be killed. Notice, first of all, the fifth trumpet. We see it in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 9. Notice verse 1. And the fifth angel sounded... And I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. As the fifth angel sounds, a star that had fallen from heaven is given the key to the bottomless pit. Now the fact that this star is not a literal star is very clear. We have seen literal stars falling from the heavens already in the book of Revelation. Back in chapter 6 and verse 13, under the sixth seal, we saw many stars falling to the earth. Back in chapter 8 and verses 10 and 11, we saw one particular star uh, by the name of Wormwood that fell to the earth and polluted the rivers. But this particular star is different because if you'll notice in verse 1, it's, uh, it calls him at the end of the verse by the pronoun him. And in verse 2 it says, and he. And so this is a personage. This isn't a literal star. This is a person. And if you remember back in chapter 1 and verse 20, we were told there that the seven stars that Christ held in his hand were seven angels. And so stars are used in the book of Revelation to symbolize angels. And so what we have here is an angel. And if you slide down in chapter 9 to verse 11, there he is called by the phrase, the angel of the abyss. And you say, well, who is this angel? Well, verse 11 tells us he is the king over all the creatures that come out of the abyss. He is the king. Verse 11 also tells us his name. It says his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, it is Apollyon. And both of those names mean destroyer. And so this one, this angel, is the king over the creatures that come out of the abyss. He is called by the title the destroyer. And verse 1 tells us he is the one who had fallen out of heaven. Now, your Bible may say, John says, I saw him fall. It wasn't present tense. It's something that already happened. This is the one who had already fallen out of heaven. And John sees this one given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, who is the angel who fell out of heaven? 
Well, keep your finger here in Revelation and go back to Isaiah 14. This is a passage you may want to mark because you may have trouble finding it again. But Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. This is a passage in reference to Lucifer, the one who was created to be the angel of the morning, the star of the morning. And now, in, in reference to him, it says, How you have fallen from heaven. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations, verse 13, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, I will make myself like the Most High, there's the sin of Satan, pride, I will be like God. And verse 14 says, or verse 15 says, nevertheless you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses, of the pit. Who is the one who has fallen from heaven? It is Lucifer, the angel of the morning, and he's thrown out of heaven because of his sin. In Luke 10, 18, Jesus makes the statement, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And when Satan sinned, and that sin occurred before man was ever created, he was cast out of heaven. Now, if we draw a little theology of Satan, Satan was actually thrown out of heaven before man was ever created. He, he was seen falling out of heaven, but he still has access into the presence of God today. He has been cast out of heaven because of sin, but he seems to still have access before God. Because if you remember in Job chapter 1 and verse 6, it talks about the sons of God coming before God, the angels coming before God, and there's... Satan, and he's making accusations against Job. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, it says that Satan is the one who accuses the brethren before God night and day. So he has been thrown out of heaven, and yet he still has access there as an accuser. And he comes before God and he accuses. When we get to Revelation chapter 12 and verses 7 to 9, we are going to find there that Satan will be thrown out of heaven permanently. So right now he has been cast out so that his, his home is no longer there, but he still has some access there. In Revelation chapter 12, we'll find him and his angels permanently expelled and permanently confined to the earth. And that's when the tribulation period will really intensify in nature. Now, looking back at Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1, you say, well, what is this bottomless pit? Or your Bible may say, abyss. Remember back in Luke chapter 8 when Jesus came across a man who was demon-possessed? In fact, the man was multiply demon-possessed. He asked him, what's your name? And he said, my name is Legion, because there were many demons inside of him. And the demons knew that Jesus was about to cast them out, and so Luke 8, 31 says they were entreating him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Please don't send us into the bottomless pit. And Jesus sent them where? 
He sent them into the swine, you remember, and they ran down the hill and drowned. They didn't want to go into this bottomless pit. Whatever it is, it's something that the demons certainly don't want to be in. And it seems to be the prison house for demons. It's used nine times in the book of Revelation. There are two categories of demons. There are demons that are loose, and there are demons that are chained or imprisoned. And many are presently operating freely in this world. They are loose. There are demonic beings all around this world. They are loose, they are active, they are involved in what's going on. There's another category of demons, and they are confined to the bottomless pit. Now, look at 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. I'll just confirm this for you. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now that word hell is not the the normal word hell, it's the, it's the Greek word tartaros. It's only used one time, and this is the place it's used. And so it seems to be some unique place. He committed them to tartaros, and then he describes really what that is. He committed them to pits of darkness. Same word, the pit, used in Revelation. You say, well, is this all the angels? Is this when they sinned at the beginning that God cast them here? No, because if that was true, then all of the angels would be in the bottomless pit. But they're not all there. There are many angels who are free. The ones Jesus dealt with said, please don't send us to the pit. So this is not the original sin of angels when they fell with Satan that he's talking about here. You say, well, when did they sin? Well, look at 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll just trace a little theology here on these confined demons. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. Verse 18 is talking about Christ and how he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Verse 19, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits, now where? Now in prison. Now that gets real heavy, but it tells me that when Christ died, he went in his spirit to preach to the spirits that are now in prison. He went to this abyss. He went to this bottomless pit. And he made proclamation. The word proclamation here is not the word uh, for the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. It's to announce victory. And he went before these demons and announced his victory. He had already won the victory on the cross. And he went to proclaim his victory over them in this prison house, the spirits. Then notice verse 20. Say, well, when did they sin? The spirits now in prison, verse 20 says, who once were disobedience, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. When did they sin? They sinned in the days of Noah. Now, take your Bible and turn back to the days of Noah. Genesis chapter 6. Hang with me on this. I can't promise you a blessing, but at least you'll understand something. Genesis chapter 6. Verse 1. 
Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now that phrase, sons of God, is only used two other times in the Bible. And each time in the Old Testament, and each time it's used of angels. It's the phrase used in Job chapter 1, verse 6, when it says, And the sons of God came before God. Speaking of angels. And Lucifer was there with them. Satan was there with them. And so this is a phrase that's used of angels. And I take it to be used of angels here. He says, The sons of God, the angels, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves. You say, well, how could an angel take a wife for himself. Well, you know, the Bible tells us that angels take on human bodies. Remember Genesis chapter 18 when, when God came in a human body with two angels to meet Abraham and those two angels went on down to Sodom and got Lot out of Sodom. They were in human bodies. In fact, Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that we better beware because we may entertain angels unaware. They sometimes take on bodies. And apparently here, these angels take on bodies and they take wives for themselves. And verse 4 tells us the outcome. It says, The Nephilim, which were giants, were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. So apparently these angels took on bodies and they took wives for themselves and the offspring of that was giants in the land. So you had a mixture of angel and human. You say, that's pretty weird. I agree, it's pretty weird. But hang with me. You say, whatever happened to these people? Uh, I think my aunt may have some of that blood. Uh, that's not what happened to them. Verse, verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually, Verse 7, and the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have made. The very next thing we see occurring is the flood, and he just destroys everybody except Noah's family, and he starts over again. And so he wipes out this race of giant beings that is produced in this situation. You say, well, you know, that's pretty bizarre. I mean, that's kind of stretching it to kind of develop all this. Well, I wouldn't hold this view if there weren't for a verse that I have. And that's in the book of Jude. And that's the little book right before Revelation. And I want you to look there. I want you to show you a couple verses that confirm what I'm telling you. Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. They did not keep their proper abode. They didn't stay in their realm. Say, so, well, what did they do? Notice verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. 
He mentions the angels. He said they didn't keep their proper abode. Then he moves right on to Sodom and Gomorrah. And they, he says they did the same thing that the angels did. They committed gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Flesh, in the, in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, going after strange flesh was homosexuality. In the case of the angels, going after strange flesh was that they were angels intermarrying with human women. Those angels that didn't keep their proper abode, took human bodies, married women, are the angels, I believe, that are confined to this bottomless pit that we read about in Revelation chapter 9. They are confined there, but they're about to get a temporary leave of absence because in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1, we see Satan with the key in his hand. Now later in the book of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, we're going to see Satan confined to this same abyss during the millennial reign of Christ. But on this occasion, he is given the key. Now who gives him the key? Well, who is the one who has the authority and power to judge and to confine? Of course, it's Christ. In fact, back in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, Christ says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. And here he gives the key of the abyss to Satan. And we see him opening this abyss in verse 2. Now notice what happens. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And as the pit is opened, the demon force kind of belches out some kind of spiritually black smoke, and it pollutes the atmosphere. It's the literal soot of hell on earth. The blackness of spiritual corruption like nobody ever dreamed. And as we're going to see in this chapter, it sweeps across the earth with a plague like no one can imagine or describe. And this is the unrestrained, vile wickedness of hell released upon man. And this is the one time man can literally say all hell breaks loose because what we see here is hell being just spilled out on the earth. And the first thing John sees is this thick black smoke, this darkness that comes out. And then out of that darkness, out of that hellish soot, he sees something else in verse 3. And it says, And out of the smoke came forth locusts, upon the earth. Now, locusts were, are insects with a reputation for destroying things. They travel in swarms and they can attack and wipe out a man's crops in a matter of moments. Uh, they represented the kind of plague that a man had no real control over. So out of the smoke comes a swarm of locusts, but they are not literal locusts as we're going to see. Because as he describes these locusts, it becomes very apparent to us that these are not normal, literal locusts. These are the inhabitants of the bottomless pit. He opens the bottomless pit and out of it come the inhabitants. And the inhabitants are these fallen angels. Only this time they're not taking on human bodies. This time they are taking on these locust-like bodies. 
They are taking on bodies designed for judgment, bodies designed to judge man. And we discover seven things about them in this passage, and they're very simple, and I really, they're, they're pretty self-explanatory. But he tells us, first of all, their power in verse 3. Notice, And out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. These locusts have, have power, and their power was like scorpions have power. And when you think of a scorpion, you don't think of great strength. You think of the power to sting someone. And that's what he's talking about here. Their power was like the power of scorpions. It was the power to hurt and to harm and to inflict pain on people. And if you'll notice carefully in verse 3, he says this power was given to them. It was derived power. God gave them this power. And so just as God used heathen nations in the Old Testament to bring judgment on Israel, so here he even uses these demonic forces to bring judgment on man. He gives them the power. Secondly, we see their domain in verse 4. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Unlike locusts who feed on green vegetation, they weren't to touch any green thing. Their target was to be men. And specifically, those men who don't have the seal of God. Now, we read about the seal of God back in chapter 7 and verse 3. The 144,000 saved Israelites were sealed with the seal of God. And so, these demon locusts are limited in that they cannot touch those who have the seal of God. You say, well, what about those who are believers during the tribulation, but they're Gentiles. They haven't been sealed with the 144,000. Well, look at Revelation chapter 22 and verse 4. This is talking about the eternal state. It's talking about all of those of us who are the children of God all together in that eternal place. And it says in verse 40, And they shall see His face, speaking of God, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Now the seal was the name of God on a person's forehead. And it may very well be that when a person believed on Christ, that name was placed there. And so I kind of think, and I don't really have a verse other than this one, but I kind of think that when a person believed in the tribulation period, he received that seal and that protection. I can't imagine God pouring hell out on his own children. And so the restriction here as these demon locusts attack the earth is that they're not able to touch those who have the seal of God. Their domain is to attack men who don't have the seal of God. Thirdly, in in chapter 9, we see their restriction. And two restrictions are placed upon them. First restriction in verse 5 is, and they were not permitted to kill anyone. And again, we see the hand of God controlling their activity. They are limited in how far they can go. They can hurt, but they can't kill. And then secondly, there's a limit on their time. He says they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. This is a five-month period of torment. You say, well, why five months? I don't know. But you know, God always puts a time limit on sin. And here he allows these 
these demon forces to come out. He really allows sin to just have its end and its way. And he puts a time limit on it of five months. And it may be because any more than that would be too much. You know, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, unless those days had been cut, cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. And here he limits this judgment to five months. Fourthly, we see their torment. Verse 5 at the end says, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Now, I've never been bitten by a scorpion. But I did some reading, and what I could ascertain is that although their sting is generally not fatal, it's one of the most intense kind of stings that an animal can inflict on a human being. Very intense. In fact, it, it tends to paralyze its victim momentarily. Uh, and so he says it, their sting is like the sting of a scorpion. And on this occasion, somebody's not going to be stung once and then have time to recover because this is going to go on for five months. They're going to be continually being stung by these demon scorpions. You say, well, how bad will it be? Look at verse 6. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it, and they will long to die and death flees from them. That tells you how bad it is. Men are going to seek to die and they're not going to be able to. They're not going to even have the out of being able to die when the pain gets too intense. They will try suicide, but it won't even be an option. And so what you have here is a living torture, torment without escape. And of course, that is hell on earth because hell is going to be the same way. You won't be able to get out of it. You won't be able to die in hell to get away from the pain. And that's the way it's going to be during this five-month period as these demon forces out of the pit come forth and they torment man for five months and he has no escape from the pain and from the torment. It's going to be intense. And then fifthly, we see their appearance in verses 7 to 10. And he says several things about their appearance. And as you read this, it's kind of hard to really visualize what this is, and you can obviously tell that, that uh, John is kind of struggling to express this. He just sort of says, um, it's like this and it's like that, because John's never seen anything like this. So he's just saying the closest he can, he's trying to identify it with or, or put it with something he does know. And so he says in verse 7, and the appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. Horses who had all their, their uh, armor on and they were all ready for battle. They had sort of a warlike look to them. Then he goes on to say, in their heads, uh, on their heads, as it were, crowns like gold. They had a crown-like look to their head, and it may even indicate that uh, they can't be defeated. The idea that they are going to be victorious in, the, in their battle. And then he says, their faces were like men. And maybe that indicates to us that they had intelligence. They weren't just some dumb animal flying around. They had faces like man, and they knew exactly what they were doing as they were bringing this judgment. Then verse 8 tells us they had the hair like women. Uh, in that day, a woman's hair was about all you got to see. We see too much today. But in that day, they had clothes on, dark clothes on, usually all the way up. And the thing that stood out on a woman was her hair. And that's why you read in the Bible about braiding of the hair and everything. They would fix their hair up very nice. That would be sort of the thing you would look at when you looked at a woman. And so 
he may be talking here about the fact that they were sort of uh, seductive. They had the hair of a woman, but notice it says right after that they had the teeth like lions. So they were in a sense seductive. When you looked at them, when they opened their mouth, they had the teeth of lions. Uh, it reminds me of the account I heard of a woman who uh, dressed in such a way that, uh, that a man picked her up, and when he picked her up, he took her to some place, uh, and he, uh, she seduced him. And uh, as he leaned over to kiss her, she had a razor blade between her teeth, and she cut his lips off. Uh, and as I thought of that, I thought this, this combination of this woman's hair and then these lion's teeth. And maybe that's the idea that he's presenting here. That was a bad illustration, wasn't it? I see people moaning back there like, uh, we'll scratch that from the tape. Uh, but, but maybe the idea that they were sort of seducing people, they looked very pleasant, and then all of a sudden these lion's teeth would rip you apart. And then he says in verse 9, they had breastplates like iron. They were indestructible. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. They were this massive swarm. They were very mobile, so they could move very quickly. And even if you were hiding from them, you could constantly hear this swarming stampede. Wouldn't that drive you crazy? You're, you're hiding, you think they, they don't find me, and then you hear this thundering hooves as they swarm around. Constant terror. And then in verse 10, he says, their tails were like scorpions and their stings were like scorpions. And so, I don't know what to add to this, but you've got a combination horse, man, woman, lion, scorpion, flying around as locusts. You've got kind of, what you have here, what it reminds me of is when you read about the cherubim and the seraphim. And you read about them having four faces and all those six wings and kind of strange stuff, but those are angels. Well, these are like inferno cherubim. They come out of the pit of hell, and here's what they look like. And they're quite a bit different. They've been, uh, they're fallen beings, fallen from what God intended them to be. And here they are flying around. If you can imagine that, uh, that's what's going on here. And then finally he tells us about their king in verse 11. And he says, they have his king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. You know, in Proverbs 30, 27, it says, locusts have no king. It makes that statement. And so, apparently, locusts are not like bees that have a leader. Locusts swarm, but they have no leader. They, they just swarm around. But these locusts have a leader. They have a king. And that king, as we've already said, is Satan. And his name is the destroyer. And so he opens this bottomless pit and then he leads this army of demon locusts inflicting pain upon man. And as I said, it's hard to visualize anything quite as horrible as this. It's literally hell on earth. And yet, even in this, as Satan and his army of demons swarm over the earth inflicting torment on mankind, we can still see the sovereign hand of God. And that's, I guess, what's exciting to me in this. You know, here's hell released and all of this happening as it spills out on the earth, and yet you still see that God is in control in this passage. God gives Satan the key. God gives them the power. God limits their activity. And God protects His people. 
Isn't that beautiful? He's releasing hell, and you think everything is chaotic and nothing, and yet God is in control, even in that situation. We come to verse 12, and it says, The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. You haven't seen anything yet, because that's just the first woe, and we still have two more to go. And we don't have time to get into the next one. The next one's, well, never mind. I, I won't even tell you about it. It's good, though. I mean, it's not good, but it's... How do I get out of this? If you like, uh, if you like action, it's good. Okay? Uh, and I really don't know how to make a good closing on this. Because uh, it's a solemn, solemn passage of Scripture. When you think about it. That that's going to happen on this earth. It could happen in a very short time. And the judgment that's going to come on this earth is devastating. It's horrible. You know, as we consider these things, I can only relay back to what we said last week, and that is, Peter said to us that since we know these things are going to happen, what kind of people ought we to be? It ought to challenge us as Christians. You know, judgment never brings a person to God. But judgment certainly challenges a Christian to be the kind of person God desires us to be. And I guess the solemn picture that we see in this passage reminds us that the spirit realm is, is real. And one day that demonic force is going to be released in judgment on man. And, and, and maybe it reminds us too that you know, what you really have here is simply sin lived out to the fullest. And it always amazes me, we love sin until we get to the bottom of the cup, don't we? we? We enjoy sipping it, and then when it starts to get a grasp on us, we want to get away from it. Well, that's really what's happening here. You have sin in its, its fullest form just released on the earth. God says, you like darkness, I'll give you darkness, I'll give you hell itself. And he spreads it out on the earth. And we see the pain that man experiences when he really gets to the bottom of the cup when sin really does what the Bible says, and that is, it leads to death. And we ought to be challenged by that as well, to be people who walk in purity before God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for this challenging passage of Scripture, Lord, that just reminds us of the horrible nature of the tribulation period. And Lord, I thank You that we live today in an age of grace when Your arms are extended in love and Your mercy is offered to us. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here today who have never come into Your loving arms by faith, that they might come today and know You as the One who gives eternal life and protects Your people. And Lord, I just pray that those of us as Christians would be challenged by what we see coming in the future, that we might truly live our lives today, each moment, to honor and glorify you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.